Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Will the expiration of Title 42 lead to an even greater uh, flow of, of migrants across the border? Will it pose major problems for the Department of Homeland Security in managing the flow? And how will the country deal with genuinely desperate people in need of food and shelter? Joining us now to discuss this important turn of events is Donald F. Kettle, a professor emeritus and former dean in the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Partnership for Public Service, the Volcker Alliance, and the Brookings Institute, and co-author of Bridge Builders, How Government Can Transcend Boundaries to Solve Big Problems. I suspect that many of our listeners have strong views on what's happening, so if we have some time later in the show, we will try to sneak in a few calls. Uh, Professor Kettle, very pleased to welcome you to our show. Leonard, it is so good to be with you. Hasn't the administration rolled out a number of new policies to encourage migrants to use legal pathways to avoid using human smugglers to enter the U.S. illegally? That's really the, the main switch of what the Biden administration is doing compared to what the Trump team did. Uh, Trump found Title 42, which was really an old law that had been put into place to try to restrict travel, uh, really to try to deal with uh, with problems of of public health emergencies and not so much immigration, but it turned out to be a helpful way for the Trump administration to try to, to choke off the flow across the border. Biden is trying very hard to essentially regularize things, to try to uh, to channel migrants through certain uh, ports of entry, to try to help prevent smugglers from bringing, in some cases, literally truckloads of migrants across the border, to try to create a better system for managing the uh, people who are applying for asylum, and then to try, with luck, to make sure that they're taken care of afterwards. So it's an effort to try to create a, a more integrated approach that is more, if you will, in the kind of regular order of things, but it's proving, of course, to be an enormous burden, given the, the, the huge number of immigrants that are flowing up from, uh, from Mexico and countries further south well, into has, the United States. Hasn't uh, the administration expanded a parole program for migrants from Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Haiti that allows up to 30,000 people from those countries to enter the United States each month if they apply for asylum from outside the United States? Uh, that's right. And it's part of this effort to, to try to regularize things. Hmm. If the administration's strategy is to try to channel the, uh, the flow of immigrants and to, uh, in particular, uh, create a set of quotas, as you point out, and then in addition to that, to recognize the particular challenges that are happening in some countries where, where people desperately need to try to find ways of finding a place to live. But it's an effort to try to, to do it through this regular process of both uh, migrant visas, asylum seekers, and other things, as you point out, that would create uh, an opportunity to be able to prevent just a, a, a tidal wave of migrants showing up at the wall. Well, aren't a group of states led by Texas challenging the parole program? Uh, there, That's the case. And we have not only uh, Texas and its attorney general filing suit to try to stop that, but in addition to that, sending uh, state troops to the border to try to, as the governor says, assist in migration uh, control. We've got the uh, governor of Florida, DeSantis, who's also sending his own troops to Texas to try to deal with that. It's a, it's a 
fascinating question of federalism because it turns out, of course, that the, the, it's the federal government that's in charge of immigration, not the states. And the role of the states in trying to manage that system is, uh, is tough, but it really is a sign of the kind of deep friction that's developed over time on the questions of immigration in particular, and especially uh, where I'm sitting here in Texas. Well, once the federal government's customs and border protection processes migrants who cross the border, isn't it up to the local networks to manage their care? And that's the thing that is one of the, the real big problems in that's underlying this and that's gotten really only a scant amount of attention so far. The, the problem is that once someone gets into the country, what happens two blocks on the other side of the border is something that is uh, a humanitarian crisis that is building and that's going to require enormous problem, um, enormous interventions. In some cases, the, the state governments helped, but really this has fallen to, to local governments, to charities, to churches, to uh, volunteer organizations of all kinds to try to find ways of, of dealing with the with the influx of, of migrants, trying to find a way to, to help in the short term provide basics of food and shelter and blankets, but then in the longer term find places for people to be able to settle and live because in many cases, the for example, for asylum seekers, it can be, take up to, to four years to get a court date to have that asylum case heard. And so it's a matter of helping people find ways of getting settled in the meantime. Has FEMA, the federal government's disaster response agency, been providing funding? Uh, they have been providing funds uh, both to the local governments, but also to nonprofits who are involved in this effort to try to help settle. So FEMA has been a, a banker for some of these efforts, and that support has been really helpful. The There's a problem of making sure there's enough money that's flowing, and we're, we're falling short on that. But in particular, uh, trying to organize a, a tremendously complex network of service providers who are there working, as I said, literally blocks away from the border, it's one of these things that in our book, Bridge Builders, that we try to look at is how can you weave together a system that will work effectively at the at the local level to try to deal with these problems? And it turns out, for example, there's a there's a church that is just a few blocks away from the border that is uh, being uh, being coordinated by the pastor there. And uh, it's Reverend, Reverend That's El Paso in El Paso and Reverend Rafael Garcia pastor of Sacred Heart Church, who is uh, in many ways the, the the super coordinator of the efforts there, along with a couple of the uh, the nonprofits there as well. So it's a, a problem that is in many ways national that is being left to uh, not even just so much local governments as much as the, uh, the nonprofit community, especially the religious community, to try to find ways of helping the people who are streaming across the border and need to be settled. Well, wasn't Title 42 imposed in response to the COVID pandemic? And that's that's exactly right. But it's right. been it used was... for more than two and a half million times to expel migrants since March 2020. I can't believe they, they were all carrying COVID. Well, and that's the thing. It was... The, the original Title 42 was passed to try to find to help the, the United States keep out people who might be carrying disease. And so that goes way back to basic questions of public health. Then when uh, the, the Trump administration came in and also found itself confronting COVID, uh, the Trump administration found a, a, a clever and convenient way of using the public health restriction to try to uh, the, 
not only ban migrants, but also to deport them on grounds that they might be carrying COVID as well. And so it turned into a, a strategy of using a public health issue as a immigration control. Uh, that the, the Biden administration said that it was in favor, was not in favor of that when it first came in, but it took, uh, took a while for the administration to roll that back. Now that COVID is not a public health crisis anymore, declared by both the United States and by the World Health Organization, kind of hard to use an, mm. an immigration control that's based in public health. And so we now face the question about trying to figure out just how to manage the, the flow at the border. But well, there really is this paradox that you point out there. Well, President Biden quickly stopped construction of Trump's border wall and introduced an immigration bill, but that's gone nowhere in Congress. Yeah, the the border wall was really much more a symbol than it was an effective deterrent. Uh, the, the old joke, of course, is that the only thing wrong with a 12-foot a wall is a 13-foot ladder. And <laughs> there have been efforts to try to find ways of getting up over the top, squeezing through. Uh, the, the amount of new border wall that was actually constructed is very small. Most of Trump's uh, construction had to do with refurbishing walls that were already in existence. And then, as we've seen as well, there are large parts of the border where the Rio Grande is relatively narrow and relatively uh, thin in as a way to be able to cross it. So people have been able to, to wade across and get into the country that way so that the, the wall proved not to be a very effective deterrent. And especially in this massive humanitarian crisis in countries like, like Nicaragua, uh, we have mm -hmm. seen our really facing an enormous uh, flood of immigrants coming in. And that's the, the source of the problem uh, with the Trump administration tried to pass on and which the Biden administration has been struggling to deal with. What role have the, the courts played in all of this complicated situation? And, and the courts have been important in, in a couple of respects. One is trying to rule on what's legal or not. And it's uh, constructing the kind of basic, the basic rules of the game on this. But but probably more importantly, there are administrative law judges, a whole collection of judicial officials that for the most part people haven't heard of and certainly don't follow, but they're in charge on a case by case by case basis of deciding who gets to stay and who doesn't. And so that if, if you say, I'm from Nicaragua, I've been persecuted where I am. If I go back, I'm sure to be killed. And therefore I want to seek asylum in the United States uh, people who apply for asylum have uh, a much easier road to get into the country, assuming that they meet certain requirements. They go into the database, but then it's a matter of assigning a court date for them. And because we are so short on these administrative law judges, it's in many cases, it's taking two, three, even four years to be able to get cases heard by the administrative law judges. And that, in turn, is creating this massive humanitarian crisis at the same time. How can we try to, to deal with the flood of migrants in the meantime hmm. until the cases can be heard? Well, hasn't the Biden administration also put into place a new limit on asylum seekers? Migrants who cross the border illegally will face a five-year ban on applying for asylum in the future. Well, exactly. And, it's, uh, and that is designed as a kind of deterrent for people uh, who maybe having uh, maybe presenting themselves with not a strong case for asylum and so if you if you come you ask for asylum uh, the uh, the border patrol decides that you don't meet the requirements then not only are you sent back across the border but you're forbidden for five years for applying again so that's that's creating a restriction there as well so the 
the the Biden administration more generally is involved in a broad effort to try to uh, to to not engage in the and creating humanitarian crises of the sort that the Trump administration did, but more fundamentally to try to to regularize the flow, to try to use a set of administrative rules and procedures and requirements to restrict the flow and to try to find ways of at least keeping track in a better way of the migrants who in fact are coming in through, for example, new apps on on cell phones to allow people to apply and to see if they can get a place in line. But the problem is that the, the apps haven't been working very well. And it turns out that if you do, uh, the, the, the lines, the, the electronic lines open at nine o'clock every morning. And it turns out that in many cases, they've just been overwhelmed and it's almost impossible to find ways of getting in so that they're uh, the information technology system hasn't been able to keep up and neither has the uh, the ability of uh, these administrative lodges to hold the cases quickly enough. Haven't the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, some immigration rights groups challenged the new asylum rules? So this isn't necessarily playing out well with liberals. No, the, the Biden administration has itself in a position where it is at a crossfire between the right and the left. From the right, there is the argument that we shouldn't be allowing people in to begin with. And what we need to do is to build more of the walls to keep them out. From the left is the challenge from the American Civil Liberties Union and and um, immigration rights groups that argue that the there can't be the kind of restrictions that the Biden administration has created. The uh, the challenge for the Biden team is that uh, the Republicans and the run up to the 2024 election are sure to make an, an enormous political case out of this. But on the other hand, from the liberal point of view, the freer immigration is the more difficult it is to try to manage the process of both getting work permits for the people who are coming in to provide enough shelter space so that people are taken care of. And so they're they're really caught between the left mm. and the right in a situation that is, uh, if not untenable, at least very complicated. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is uh, Professor David Kettle. Uh, we are uh, Donald Kettle. I'm sorry. Uh, and in a little while, we'll be taking your calls. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, uh, I mentioned left-right because when he announced that he was running for the presidency, Donald Trump said, and I'm quoting, although I'm, um, this is not the complete quote, but it's most of it, the U.S. has become a dumping ground for everybody else's problems. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending the best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Well, that word rapist sure did get a lot of attention. No, it surely did. And it was part of the of the initial magic, if you will, of the Trump campaign. It was the, the magic potion of finding both words and themes and issues that he discovered would resonate with the uh, with enough voters to be able to get himself elected. And it created a kind of image of the problem that now is being very difficult to try to, to try to uh, try to counter. So for, Biden is kind of trapped in the the uh, the, the trap that, that Trump laid out. Yeah, that's exactly the case because Trump had the advantage of, in a sense, getting there first and defining the issues. 
what he was successful at doing is is creating this sense of the, the immigrants are coming. They're coming in floods. They're going to take your jobs. They're going to create criminal problems. Uh, they're going to be bringing drugs to your communities, and you don't want to have them there. And so it was an effort that proved to be successful at scaring enough voters to be able to get them into the White House. And and now Biden finds himself trying to deal with issues and challenges that are so incredibly difficult, but more difficult because he's lost the ability to be able to even define the issue for himself. And because of that, the, uh, the Trump is setting the stage for the 2024 election, largely on issues that, that Biden, on the one hand, has to confront, and on the other hand, that he can't really control. I'm sure our listeners want to join this conversation, so we invite calls at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. If you would like to discuss Title 42 with uh, Professor Donald F. Kettle, your name is spelt slightly oddly, K-E-T-T-L. It, it is. And believe it or not, that people always look at it and say that that can't be right. There has to be an extra E. So they mm-hmm. put it in somewhere. But it turns out it's a it's a good Bavarian name. And the family came originally from uh, either Austria or, or uh, Bavaria in Germany, depending on who was winning which war at the time. And so there's a long history that goes back. And turns out anybody with their name misspelled the same way, K-E-T-T-L, is almost certainly a relative or a distant cousin. Uh, nearly 60,000 migrants have made their way to New York City over the past year, but many are no closer to having their asylum cases heard than when they arrived. Um, uh, weren't many sent here by Florida and Texas? Is that the way they're resolving the problem for themselves? Uh, the, the people who have been bust from both Texas and Florida, but especially from Texas, uh, are are being sent up. It's it's a it's a tiny drop in the bucket in terms of solving the uh, the migrant problem at the border in Texas. But on the other hand, politically, it's a way of making sure that uh, that blue states don't get a chance to be able to uh, to demonize the red states for failing to solve the problem because the red states are trying to turn to export the problem to states like New York, but also to to cities like Washington and Chicago and Baltimore. So it's uh, it's gone into a this enormous problem. Some people say, New York, okay, that sounds good. I'd love to live in New York, and maybe there'll be more opportunity there. In some cases early on, in particular, uh, people were, were told that it's a great time to get on the bus. We're going to send you someplace where you'll be taken care of. And they had no idea where they were going. And uh, then when they got there, they had no way of being able to get support. So that the uh, it's part of this broader problem of a, a bridge building that we describe in the book, where you've got to find some way of developing a support system for people who find themselves uh, in a in a community that they don't know, in many cases speaking a language that's not as well understood, needing a set of support services that may not be available, waiting for court cases that are years in advance. And so it truly is a, a humanitarian crisis that's making uh, itself known. And, and it could very well turn out to be the... the by far the bigger the bigger set of issues in comparison to just the issues at the border itself, which tend to get all the publicity. 
And it's also making any number of New Yorkers angry, often uh, people who had been immigrants themselves. I've been watching uh, news reports about people who are upset that the school gyms that their kids are would be using are now being converted for housing for this overflow of immigrants. I mean, 60,000 immigrants have made their way to New York City uh, yeah, just in the past year. Yeah, that, it's just an, extra, an extraordinary uh, set of issues and problems that are being created. Uh, there are immigrants in New York who have always traditionally worked very hard to try to get a footing. Uh, in many cases, have had to do it on their own and bootstrapping themselves along the way, uh, have tried to get better education for their kids and then discover that the things that they work for are being squeezed out in the effort to, to try to accommodate the new flood of veterans coming in. And of course, there's the tremendous controversy in the su suburbs of New York where uh, there's been an effort to try to, to buy large numbers of hotel rooms just simply to, to house some of the immigrants in the meantime. And county officials have been have been strongly opposed to that as well. So, Well, it's also the, been a Democrat-Republican thing. Rockland County has a Republican uh, leader. Um, and uh, I would suspect that uh, they would like to stick a, a thumb in Mayor Adams' eye whenever they can. Any chance, any chance they have to be able to do that is a is a good chance. And the, uh, the it has to do with the uh, the local politics and the, and the great uh, political fun there always is in finding ways of of getting under the skin of your opponents and. And Mayor Adams, on the one hand, has been talking about the need for some of the other communities to help shoulder some of the load. And on the other hand, Republican counties have said, we're, you, you didn't even consult with us. Mm -hmm. And so the last thing we're going to do is to help you solve what's really your problem on this. But there's an underlying issue as well, which is that Republicans and Democrats tend to have a very different response to the issue of of immigration. Uh, with Republicans, it's mainly a matter of finding a way to stop it at all costs, to make the idea of immigration and the conditions for immigration so unpleasant that people would choose not to do it. But on the other hand, Democrats find themselves uh, with a often a, a more open idea toward immigration and focusing on the, the challenges and problems of providing the right kind of supportive care. And so that there's a, there's a conversation between the red and the blue, between the Republicans and Democrats, where the, the basic issues are, are never really confronted because they fly past each other at such different altitudes. Well, let's see what our listeners are thinking about all of this. We have a number of people calling in. Again, the number 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the air. Hey, uh, Professor and uh, Leonard, uh, great to hear this discussed with some complexity. Firstly, I want to say... Well, um, for, first of all, can I stop you for a second? Isn't part yeah. of the problem in dealing with the issues like this that they get five minutes on the news every night and you really don't get very deep into I agree, the complexities um, of, of what we're really discussing here? Well, no, it's nice to hear something discussed not by Sean Hannity and not by any good because this is not a left-right issue. This is an issue, uh, it's, it's very complex. I first want to say that I'm in White Plains, and our city Hello? Now, the fact that they were here illegal doesn't matter to me because it's from... We're having problems with this know. call. 
Hello, hello. Are you still there? You yeah, you're we're here, here, but you the the uh, call keeps on breaking up. So repeat what you no, were just I'm saying. Not. Okay, they've rehabilitated White Plains. They've improved it substantially. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, the neighborhoods they rehabilitated were dilapidated neighborhoods full of black people. And this is something that the mainstream media just lumps together this democratic coalition of like. People have come over the border along with black people, along with gay people. It's like that coalition doesn't exist. These people in my city, they wear cowboy hats. They drive American cars. And the liberals with the signs that say immigrants welcome, they're driving imported cars. And when I ride my bicycles past their house, sometimes they'll say, go down to Rathbun Avenue. There's a bunch of guys down there who need a place to live. And they look at me like I have two heads. They want people, but they don't want them in their house or on their street. They Professor want them Kettle? theoretically in the country, understand? Mm-hmm. It's purely theoretical for the left. Professor Kettle? Yeah, I think that that's a huge problem because for uh, for just about everybody, the problem is this enormous bit of complexity. And the there's not in my neighborhood. We just uh, we want to help people, but certainly not here. So there is that not in my backyard kind of phenomenon. But but more fundamentally, there is a, the issue of the uh, the nature of the problem that's being created by the battle over immigration. And it's not just the uh, the swarm of people that on the evening news you can see uh, lining up at the border, but it's what literally happens two blocks away. People who come into the country and then the question of what do we do? And so... Should they be taken care of in, in Texas, where a lot of this problem is originating? Uh, is it legitimate to send some of the immigrants to, say, New York, where there's a hope of providing more more services, but where New York is finding itself overwhelmed? Should well, buses York... arrive every day with uh, hundreds of, of immigrants. Right, exactly. And we so we have that as a kind of problem of exporting it. And, and part of it is political theater. But part of it also is an effort to try to to offload some of Texas's problems into New York, and then New York has the question of let's distribute some of the some of the responsibility for taking care of the problem from the city out to some of the suburbs as well. But then it's a question of yet again figuring out who is going to shoulder this responsibility. And the main issue, the main challenge, is developing a kind of kind of network of of service providers who are in the position to be able to help solve us a very real humanitarian crisis that is only going to get more difficult. Well, as I mentioned earlier, nearly 60,000 migrants have uh, made their way to New York City over the past year. None of them are, uh, many of them are no closer to having their asylum cases heard than when they arrive. So what's going on? So the the basic problem here is that uh, we have migrants who come in, they claim asylum, they, uh, the initial claim seems to be at least worth hearing. They are admitted into the country. They're told that now you're going to need to come back to, uh, to for a court hearing. In some cases, the hearings are, are scheduled in a completely different place that are virtually impossible for migrants to be able to get to. But more fundamentally, it's the, the enormous backlog that's caused by this problem we discussed with the administrative law judges because there just simply aren't enough of them to hear the cases. And there literally have been cases for people in the last week showing up at the border being admitted on grounds of uh, being potentially eligible for asylum and getting a uh, hearing date for their case in 2026, 2027. Wow. And so if you've got 
if you have to wait four years to be able to deal with that, that means four years where the person is legitimately in the country, but will take a long time to even have the case heard and to be able to, to have the decision made about whether or not they're eligible to stay in the country. Or, so what do we do or get meantime? a job and things like that? Yeah, and then the problem is that initially uh, you're not allowed even to work because you need a work permit to be able to do that. And the work permits sometimes can take uh, a year and a half to be able to get so that we have uh, people who in many cases legitimately are are fleeing political problems and, and are in fear for their lives, at least have a reasonable case for asylum, come in and say, I want to be able to make for a better life. I'm, I'm happy to work, but now I can't get a work permit for a year. And so we have the problem of, of the kind of short-term issues. And then uh, in a year, working through the process, getting the permit, which is another piece of government paperwork, and then looking for the opportunity to be able to get a job. And so we've got this, this incredibly complex system that uh, individuals have to navigate to be able to get through. And that's part of what's causing all these tensions among the states. If you start off by saying, uh, the biggest basic problem is just keeping people out. That's the, the, the what's been the Republican position. Democrats are saying, well, we'll be a little bit more liberal and letting people in. But then the question of how to try to provide the support that's needed. Uh, we've, we've got this this tension back and forth that neither side can find a way to talk about, but which is only multiplying in terms of the humanitarian crisis that's building. We are taking listener calls. Our number is 212-209-2877, and we'll be taking more of them right after this break. I pity the poor immigrant who wishes he would have stayed home. uses all his power to do evil but in the end is always let so alone obviously uh, issues regarding immigrants are just not a recent thing <laughs> i don't remember when bob dylan recorded that song this is wbai new york 99.5 fm and streaming live at wbai.org again our number here, 212-209-2877. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Daryl McPherson, Bronx, New York. Hi. I wish I was. Leonard, I would, uh, may I call you Leonard, first of all? Of and course. What would you call me otherwise? Uh, any other name I'd prefer you not to say on the air. <laughs> well, we can get into the whole English caste system passed along by Mr. Lope. However, I want to thank you for... Bringing on Professor Kettle, K-E-T-T-L, correct? Yes, he's a professor. <laughs> That's correct. He's a professor <laughs> emeritus, a former dean of the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, and as I mentioned earlier, co-author of a book called Bridge Builders, How Government Can Transcend Boundaries to Solve Big Problems. I want to let you know that I could spend the rest of the afternoon doing good search, earning money for WBAI on just the brief segment that, you, that you're doing right now. Question. Title 42, does it violate uh, international um, immigration law? Let me just ask a bunch of things, and, and then I'll get off. Two, Mayor Adams, an embarrassment, almost as good as Greg Abbott and, and uh, uh, Ron DeSantis. And I'd like to know where Ron DeSantis's grandmother came from. Um, is, it, is it 
is it possible that we could get to the population, especially the population that's in, in oh, before I do that, the people that on 57th Street that were in the hotel that got evicted and shipped out to Brooklyn, a lot of those men got jobs in the neighborhood and were angry because they had no no way of they had they had no way of understanding how to get to their jobs from where they were shipped off to mm-hmm. so wouldn't it be interesting if the democrats rather than whatever they're trying to trying to do in getting a message across got into deep 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 solving the problem we have there are 100 billionaires that live in new york city our former mayor mike bloomberg 94 billion dollars do you think that that group of people would be able to come up with a plan in which all housing, all food distribution, all education could be taken care of and they could still make a profit? That's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. The population has the, the, the average person tuning into CNN or Fox or Newsmax is in terror that they're going to be homeless themselves, that they're going to be on the street. So these quote-unquote new people coming in are a direct threat. So you violate international law, you create all kinds of illusions, you spend literally billions of dollars trying to keep people out when you have a shortage of, uh, you have a shortage in your workforce. So help me understand what planet I'm on. Professor Kettle? I mean, the the problem at the core is that... uh, we have this thing called Title 42, which is legitimate in terms of trying to manage public health crises at the border during public health crises. The, the public health crisis is over. Now we've got a different crisis in trying to deal with, with immigration. And the what's happening in El Paso right now is a, is a great example of what it's taking to be able to try to, to deal with the problem. For example, just as I mentioned earlier, a, f- a few blocks away from the border is in El Paso is uh, Sacred Heart Church. And there are people who have been uh, coming in. Uh, the, the word is go to Sacred Heart Church and you'll be able to get some help so that there are people who are sleeping outside of the sidewalks because there's really no place else for them to go. And fortunately, the weather's getting a little bit better. So it's not a, 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 a situation where people are being left outside and, and freezing cold. Uh, the women and children are being invited into the gym that they're sleeping in now. But then in addition, the question is how to try to deal with that. And so there are uh, the uh, opportunity center for the homeless. They have a shelter that's expanded. They're housing about 200 people there. Uh, they're at the church. There's a restaurant that is providing meals for migrants and groceries for hundreds of people there. The uh, there's, in addition to that, the Catholic Charities of, of Southern New Mexico, believe it or not, that is actually involved in helping the, the nonprofits in El Paso try to deal with the issue. And so what we've got is a, is a very complex system of, of different nonprofits, for the most part, along with some local government organizations that have had to shoulder the burden of trying to deal with the flood of migrants to provide the, the initial care, but also the, the transitional efforts to try to help people settle until their cases can be heard. Has so it's burden, not just a... Has the burden uh, eased a little bit because we're hearing that the numbers are down considerably? At, at least the, the, the tidal wave of the initial first phase of problems has, has made things made things better. The, the, the enormous crisis that everybody was really worried about 
of having thousands and thousands of people streaming across the border when Title 42 ended at this point has not happened. Uh, nobody knows exactly what's going on. Maybe it's just something that's been delayed and will increase in the future. Maybe the the the, the initial tsunami has, has eased a bit, but still there are thousands of people who have come across the border, uh, some legally, some not, and who need at least the basics of, of food and water and shelter ultimately to try to find ways of getting work and then having their cases heard about whether or not they can stay. And uh, so that the, in, the, in the short term, the at least addition to the crisis has eased a bit, but we still have thousands of people who are in this situation who need food and water and shelter and jobs and housing and opportunities to be able to figure out what's going to happen until the cases are heard. So it's a, it, at least the, we're, we're not adding more fuel to the fire, but we already have a, a big forest fire that's already raging. I wondered earlier when Bob Dylan recorded that, I pity the poor immigrant, 1967. So immigrants have been on our mind, well, for a lot longer than that, too. After all, this is a country uh, that is populated 100% by immigrants, even the so-called indigenous people, the Native Americans. They came over from Asia, mostly. So uh, this was unpopulated human-wise until people started coming across oceans. well, we can get into that later. We are taking calls at 212-209-2877. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Good afternoon. My name is Rose. I live in New Jersey. Hi, Rose. And as always, your show is just wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm uh, 74, and I'm blind, and I can't get a home health aid because everybody's got all this paperwork, and you've got to be a nurse, and, but you don't need all this. There is so much need for labor in this country. No one has looked at that angle of it. No one has said, well, let's get those children out of the meatpacking places in the Midwest. Let's get some people who can, you know, basically take care of children. I mean, child care is a real rough one. How about house cleaning? I used to work in an agency back in the the 70s in New York when people would come in without any credentials. And as long as they were of moral fiber and, you know, had some kind of reference, you could get him a job taking care of some of these kids, cleaning the house, cooking. I mean, we have so many needs. How about house building? Well, the, 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 the big houses aren't going to be important, but it's, it's stupid things like um, trailers and uh, prefab sort of stuff. And what about migrant workers? Who's going to pick these berries? I mean, I remember a few years ago in Alabama, they couldn't, they couldn't harvest their tomatoes because they had no workers. There's a lot of dirty work to be done in America, and why nobody looks at that and says, oh, okay, let's help those people get to that point and stop treating them as the, as the enemy. They're really, by and large, I have a lot of friends from overseas, and especially South America. So you South want America. these people to do the dirty work? I'm not asking them to do the dirty work. I'm just saying that there is a lot of dirty work here to be done. And there are probably a lot of people who would be willing to do it. They may be very educated. One of the things that blew me away is everybody's now going to put all their, their, their people in gyms. After Rudy Giuliani took down the, the, uh, the whole extra library situation, we could have had them in there in the libraries. They could have been working interactively to learn English, to, to do the research that they needed, and work with young people who are trying to learn Spanish for perhaps teaching or, you know, other languages, French, be whatever you want. Um, we do not think creatively in this country. It's all about reactionary, well, you know, 
I'm, I'm going to work this politically. And it's unfortunate because who's going to pick those apples this summer? And who's going to get, who's going to, hey, remember what happened in World War II? We invited the, the Mexican people in. They came in. They picked all the vegetables because all the men were out of, out of the country fighting the wars. We took Social Security from them. And then when they tried to collect it, we wouldn't give it to them. I mean, come on. We have a, we have a very nasty reputa- reputation for being turncoats on people who help us. And I think it's high time we look at possibilities that people will come in and do lesser jobs. I mean, when I worked in the employment agencies, it was like upholstery, car repair. You know, there are certain industries that you could get a job in because the Department of Labor had felt that there was a need for them. Do we hear anything like that coming across the radio? No. Professor Kettle? Yeah, that is uh, a tremendously important point. And it's one of the things that really creates a big distinction between the way that the United States and most countries in Europe are handling this issue, uh, because countries in Europe are dealing with with immigration issues as well. They are recognizing that one of their big problems for the future is that the birth rate has gone down dramatically, as it has here in the United States as well. And so the question is, who is going to be uh, not only working on the so-called dirty jobs, but jobs in general in five years, 10 years, 20 years. Uh, where is the workforce going to come from? And at this point, uh, the United States risks uh, undermining its economy in the long term because the birth rate is low and we need to have workers who are equipped and capable and trained and educated to be able to do the things that we're going to want to have done. The one, it's, it's an issue that we don't like to confront for all the reasons that Rose suggests, but we have a, a big problem coming down the road of not having enough workers. And if we're going to be interested in trying to find ways of solving that problem, of trying to find the workers that we need for the future, not only for, for just construction, home health aids, but, but for sophisticated engineering work and other things, uh, we're going to have to look at strategies. And either we can have more kids, which we have not really been doing, or we can uh, find a creative way of bringing migrants in who we can train with the skills that we're going to be needing for the future. And that issue that Rose talks about, about, about employment, is actually one of the big sleepers in this issue all, all in all. We thank the caller so much. Let's, we invite more calls. Our number is 212-209-2877. BAI, you're on the air. Yes, uh, greetings to the such as we are these days. Uh, this is my act calling from the cold. And Leonard, thank you for including uh, the community with authors. Very important. It will give you more um, uh, connections, and I hope you continue this. Um, and uh, It depends on what the topic me- is. When you give your email, please spell your last name, which people, that's important that you do that, but please spell your last name. Professor, um, I, w- I first want you to clarify uh, the title of your book, the publisher, and its general availability. And then I'd like your thoughts on whether you're familiar with um, Juan Gonzalez, Seminole uh, Harvest of Empire, who seems to get right to the to the core of what a lot of this is about. And uh, also, any thoughts on the S-hole mouth of 1DT that seemed to be a direct link to what happened in 
Pittsburgh, the Tree of Life, because they had a program of immigrants and the language of, of Trump that motivated 11 killed and many injured in Maine, and also what happened in El Paso. And if you have my questions, I'll listen over the air. Thank you. Thank you for your call. Well, thank you, and thank you for those for those questions. Uh, the the book is titled Bridge Builders, How Government Can Transform, okay, I'm sorry, How Government Can Transcend Boundaries to Solve Big Problems. It's co-authored by me and William Eggers, and it's available now for pre-order on Amazon, and it will be released on Tuesday. So it's just the time to be able to put an order in for that. Again, the book title is Bridge Builders. Uh, I, I'm not aware of the other book that you were talking about, but uh, the, the the question about the, uh, the the political tensions that have grown and the way that they've unfortunately too often spilled over into violence is such a crucial and important one. Um, society, unfortunately, has just simply gotten more coarse where it is possible uh, or even increasingly likely for people to to take their frustrations, their worries, their concerns out on uh, people of of different ethnic groups of race, different races, of immigrants in particular, and that's led in some cases to violence, as you pointed out, both in El Paso, but but also in, in other places as well. And the that kind of coarsening of American society, the, the resort to violence, the tensions that have grown are things that have, have, uh, have come up in some ways out of immigration. But on the other hand, immigration has become uh, a handy target for those who want to try to find ways of 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 attacking their frustrations in, in ways that maybe feel a little bit more distant. But uh, we don't we don't want any more of, of those people in the country. We we don't want that kind of thing being taught. Uh, we're going to try to do all we can to preserve our basic values. There's always been a problem in the United States. Well, wait, wait, of, but haven't of, we offered asylum since World War II to people with well-founded fears of persecution on the basis of, of race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group? We so, absolutely have. So is and, that still in effect? Uh, it's still in still effect where we, we offer, offer asylum, which is how we have these asylum rules, and it requires people presenting themselves at the border and making their case about why it is that they're subject to persecution. And some of this, in fact, stems from our unhappy experience in World War II, where we realized later that our our tight restrictions uh, condemned uh, thousands of people to death who would have wanted to get out but couldn't because they couldn't find a home. We kept people so out we, from the Holocaust. We also used to exclude Asians and uh, people from Southern Europe. Uh, right. Well, let, let's precisely. Say, and now it's people from uh, the, the countries south of the United States. Let's uh, take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Gentlemen, good afternoon. This is a, a very pertinent and uh, uh, ready, uh, ready topic, as well as the situation for all of us. Uh, Brother Leonard Lope, thank you, and for your guest, Dr. Kettles and your partner uh, who helped uh, author your book. This is Pastor Michael Vincent Crea, C-R-E-A. I won't get into my whole story, but you can look at uh, Facebook, Michael Vincent Crea, and you can see some of what myself and my uh, service dog, who's next to me, whose name is Taranga, and Taranga is a wall-off word from Senegal. I'm a Peace Corps veteran, and Michael Vincent Crea will tell you more of the story. But I've been on many fronts of this, 
first, uh, my mother was a uh, naturalized citizen, uh, having uh, come from occupied, still occupied Ireland, and working uh, in uh, London with my father, who was in logistics during the Second World War, and brought uh, to the United States. So I know it from that angle. I know it from since I was four years old on Staten Island, when the next-door neighbor said, your mother and brothers are red-headed Irish monkeys. Hmm. Uh, that's still with me very vividly. Uh, I know it from my Senegalese brother, who came here on a work permit, uh, was working in Atlanta, uh, was here for seven years, moved out to my other brother. Uh, well, it was actually his cousin, and we all call one another brothers uh, as part of the, my Senegalese family, per se, as a Peace Corps vet, but moved out to St. Louis, and his lawyer didn't put in his uh, extension papers on time. And then what happened was uh, when they were, uh, uh, he was called up, then uh, he, she didn't put it in again on time. He was arrested uh, at four in the morning, held in a private jail before Senator Clinton and Senator Brownback, who's now uh, governor of Kansas. He was held in a uh, private contractor uh, facility for 10 days and deported. Now, C- caller, we have very little time left. So thank you very much for your call. And uh, Professor Kettle, do you have anything you want to say about that before we try to sneak one more call in? <laughs> first, first, a warm greeting to the service dog who's sitting there enjoying the show here, too, on top of that. But the uh, th- th- this is long history of the, the role of immigrants in American society and the tension that there's always been between welcoming people who are looking for a place to feed their they're, they're tired and they're hungry, as the Statue of Liberty says. But on the other hand, that have always created tensions, in part because of cultural differences, in part because people might look different or because they might speak differently or have different color of hair or come from a, a, a racial background that people find uncomfortable. So we've, we've had this tension for literally a couple of hundred years between opening the country on the one hand to people who want to try to join the American experiment, and on the other hand, people who feel threatened by new people coming in who don't match the culture that they've established. It is a, it's always been an issue, but is now flaring to the sur- surface in a way that in, in many ways has galvanized national politics in, in ways that are, that are unique and unprecedented. We have just about a minute and a half left, and I did want to sneak one more call in. Uh, can you make a quick caller? Yes, good morning. Go ahead. It's Um, afternoon, but go ahead. Good afternoon. Um, Very quickly, trying to get a few things in. One of them being um, getting to the core of the problem, which is the exploitation of the natural resources in Central and South America by the United States, Mm -hmm. causing all these people to come here. Uh, the second point is um, the lack of representation of the people, hmm. of the migrants. For example, we have Professor Carroll, with all due respect, uh, representing academics. Yet we don't have representation of um, somebody that is a migrant, of somebody that's trying to lead this movement. Okay, I, I, those are very good points, I, and we have very little time. Professor Kettle, you want to respond? 
Yeah. First to the the second point, uh, I'm I wouldn't be here if it weren't for immigration because there were uh, relatives of mine back in the 1850s who came from from Germany and Austria to this country and who settled in and made the the opportunity for for growth and allowed me to in many ways be do the kinds of things I'm doing and to have the conversation we're having here. And the the, the roots of migration and the immigrant flood is is in part due to the the the, the political persecution happening in some countries, especially the ones we've been discussing, the as as the caller points out, the problem of the uh, the decline of natural resources, which makes it hard to be able to get jobs, and th- in many ways, the more positive thing, the the wonderful reputation that the United States enjoys as a place where people can can come and settle and find opportunity and define liberty, which is uh, the kinds of things on which this country was founded and which is. Now growing and expanding, but on the basis of a, a very different immigrant population than was the case in the past. And so that's all part of the, the way in which the American experiment is, is growing and expanding at this point, but in ways that as has always been the case uh, that sometimes people feel very uncomfortable about. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Kettle, uh, Professor Donald F. Kettle. Um, co-author of the of the book that's just coming out, Bridge Builders, How Government Can Transcend Boundaries to Solve Big Problems. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. It's so great having a chance to be able to talk, Leonard, and to talk with you and your listeners about this important issue. And that brings us to the end of the show. If you'd like to check out more about one-hour interviews on a subject, you can access our archive of over 800 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. A listener asked me to spell my last name. It's L-O-P-A-T-E. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting BAI because we're struggling to stay afloat during these difficult times. So we're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's given the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of station, what we call a BAI buddy at $10, $15, $20, $25, whatever comfortable you're you're with. Uh, It allows us to plan for the future. And we're offering a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. It's tax deductible. We are the only station on the New York dial that relies 100% on our listeners' support. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Christopher Reddy will discuss his new book, Science Communication in a Crisis. We'll see you then. 